Hello, everyone. Welcome to another week in another episode of The Circuit. I am Ben Beharin. Autobots assemble. I'm Jay Goldberg. Autobots. Well, we have finally, finally, the a topic we've been waiting for uh, for some time as, uh, has arrived. The ARM F1, not an S1 because they're a foreign company, but the F1 uh, has, uh, has dropped. And it was interesting to see the coverage that it got and then also kind of the coverage that it didn't get, to be honest with you. I, I, I do think a couple of major news outlets did uh, cover it. I know I talked to The Verge and the information and a few others, I'm sure, uh, I'm sure you did too, but definitely there was interest. I think there's a, any, it's exciting anytime an IPO happens in general, uh, let alone, you know, this one being a, a key topic around, uh, around semiconductors. Um, but let's start with kind of initial, initial thoughts and observations. I know you, you wrote a post, um, sifted through some interesting disclosures that were found, but I'll just start off with like, their F one. Your thoughts. So I wrote I wrote three posts on it. I, I dug deep into the filing. Uh, it was uh, there's a lot of nitty gritty in there, but a lot of it was pretty well buried. And I would say overall, well, the title of my concluding post was IPO Arm IPO two, the search for more money, because uh, as much as I think highly of ARM and its prospects and a lot of its markets, the technology they produce, they are owned by SoftBank and SoftBank is using this IPO to maximize its exit and just suck as much com- as much cash out of the company as they can. And I think that's going to be challenging. So that's my big high level takeaway. Yeah. I, I you know, but, but some of the stuff I thought was, you know, interesting was I was really hoping that more of the, uh, outline of business model, you know, would be disclosed. I know, you know, y- you worked into back into some of the math. Um, others, others did as well, trying to figure out, you know, okay, well, how much do they get from per chip today? Trying to get some sort of an understanding of, you know, is there even, you know, upside? But I was sifting through it, trying to say, you know, again, spending a lot of time looking at them, you know, when they were public, when this was a five to $600 million a year, you know, uh, licensing business and trying to understand what's, what's changed in the business that anybody who looks at this from those who looked at it back then are going to see sort of a different company. And one of my sort of still takeaways was while there are some elements to that, to their upside, which, which we'll talk about, uh, it still felt like this company's revenues are very, very concentrated in a couple of, you know, challenging areas. One being China, which I think was either 25 or 24 or 27 percent. Also, five customers like you and I talked about. Uh, dense consolidation of those customers. And then what what happens if, you know, either one, you get into litigation with one of these customers, because you never know, right, when you're trying to do licensing negotiations, as Qualcomm's a great example, this happens all the time, um, and then someone starts paying you, that's just, a, it's a lot of money coming from just a small few places, which gave, and I know we talked about this, but I talked about this letter, it's just some, some concerns about how do you grow? How do you grow from here when you're really, really isolated in your revenue. Your biggest chunks of revenue is just coming from a few sorts of things. So that, that was kind of one of those things that hit me right off the bat that I didn't quite know 
how exposed they were in just a small chunk of customers prior to this release. So, yeah, a few episodes back, we, I think we were talking about the data center, and I made a joke. I said, "Arms only earning pennies per data center chip," and I immediately, immediately corrected myself because I was like, "Oh, it can't be that can't be right. It can't be pennies in the data center. It has to be dollars per chip in the in the data center." And we still don't know the data center figure, but on average, of the 30 billion ARM chips that shipped last year, ARM made 11 cents. So a tiny, tiny little fraction of it all, 11 cents. And okay, that's that's better than it was, you know, yes. five, 10 years ago. It was probably yeah. six, five, six cents back then. But I was I was really shocked, 11 cents. And earning, so I looked, I looked back at the historicals the company has grown revenue 16% a year for the last 10 years. Like Kager over that time, since they've been private, they've grown revenue 16%. But it it, it sure doesn't feel that way, right? I, to right. your point, it really looks like they went into private ownership under SoftBank and they just kind of went to sleep. They just kind of coasted for a long time. That Yeah, they've, they've made some inroads at the data center, but that's mostly two customers, Ampere and Amazon. They've made, you know, some other entries into IoT and some networking stuff. But really, when you boil it down, it's still very much the same company that it was when SoftBank bought it. Yep. And that was a little disappointing. Now, admittedly, they didn't break out revenue by end segment. Yep. They broke they broke out TAM, but they did it in, like, textual form for some reason. They didn't put a chart up. So not really trying to highlight those figures, which, which makes me strongly suspect that they are largely reliant on mobile where they have 99% market share and mobile's not a great market to be and like you said they have five customers right and and their biggest customer is arm china which is now an independent entity and we can talk about what a mess that could be apple's number two okay that seems like a safe bet and then their third largest they're suing their third largest customer qualcomm so (laughs) it's it's that's a little that's not a great setup right there concerns me yeah, well, and so I guess there's questions, too, on um, one of the things that sort of struck me, and once I got it, I was sort of searching through all customer names, and it was interesting that, that MediaTek was not mentioned in there, and MediaTek easily has to be in their top five. I'm not sure, you know, where they where they fall. The, 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 the customers you just listed, I mean, I, I tried to figure out really who was one, two, three, four, five, to be honest with you. It's a little bit tricky, but I was trying to work this out and try to, to poke around others that I knew to, to figure out, you know, really who they were. But obviously it's the scale customers who who ship in hundreds of millions, which is your MediaTek, Qualcomm, and, uh, and and Apple. And then obviously you've got, you know, NVIDIA's right there and, and possibly Samsung um, as top five or, or, or maybe in, in fifth place. Um, but yeah, I think the... The, the the consolidation there is definitely a concern. It's it's something that I heard from a lot of people. But but let's talk about the China one briefly um, before we talk about kind of the overall, I would say, risk statements that we want to talk about. So I, th- there was a lot of, and they disclosed this, and I think they also included some of this in a risk statement, so it might bleed in. Um, they note they pointed out that they kind of have no really control over that. And I believe either mentioned specifically or alluded to they have had challenges getting money in the past from 
customers in China. And I know that that took some people, a mo- number of reporters I talked to highlighted specifically on the, the China thing. Um, I do think that's concerning. I don't know. I really don't know how that bit goes going forward. But just to, to tack on to that, they made another sort of claim that they have 10% of the data center market, just a little over over 10%. Um, and a good chunk of that's got to come from China because I believe most people believe the non-China, call it U.S. European hyperscalers, that number is more like four to five percent. So it's possible then that we're talking five percent and clearly growing, as you know, you've got Baidu and uh, and and a bunch of companies there starting to, I would say, deploy more, you know, risk or or, or arm armed technology in the data center, um, that's a big growth opportunity, I think, for, for them. And it's one that they rightly said, we see, you know, we don't really have any direct control over and we, it's been hard to get money from in the past. So I've just, that didn't land great. I think they had, again, obviously they had to disclose it, but I know a lot of people were really concerned about that bit in general. So on the, on the data center side, the register actually had a, a, a post last week, and we'll include it in the show notes. But the Register put out a note, a, 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 an article saying over 50% of their data center revenue comes from Amazon, from Graviton. And so the number two is going to be Ampere, and those two together are probably the bulk of it. I think yeah. the Chinese hyperscalers have ARM stuff going on, but it's always been an open question just how good those parts are and how much they're actually doing. Because I, I know for a fact they're, they're, they're all still using a lot of Intel. Uh, and so I, I think the data center side for ARM China is uh, a work in progress. Um, but ARM China itself is uh, is it, it's just super fascinating to watch. You know, uh, it, To me, it's like we had this whole drama, the so- soap opera two years ago where yeah. where the head of arm china sort of hijacked the whole entity and that was for me that was my favorite like drama of, of the pandemic it was favorite thing to watch during the pandemic and now we have this filing it's like the extra bonus season on top of on top of all that uh they in addition to the risks filing they also had an addendum to the filing where they included the entire arm china jv contract mm. which was super super dense legalese very very complex IP negotiation, IP licensing stuff going on. And I think the the takeaway from reading the risk section of the the F1 was very, everyone was pretty negative. Like, oh my goodness, they have no audit rights. They have limited audit rights. They can't collect money. They can't control it. I think that's that's all true. Uh, but also remember, in, a, in an IPO prospectus, the risk section is there to lay out the worst case scenario. Right. You can't sue us. We warned you about this, right? So it sort of yeah. lays out, it makes it look as bad as possible. Right. Reading through that that uh, JTLA, I think it's called the Joint Licensing Agreement, um, JVLA, was uh, a little bit more reassuring in that it's sort of a reminder that ARM China can't exist without ARM R&D mm-hmm. back from the US and UK. And so having, I, I've, I've seen these kinds of things from the inside and like, yeah, you. I think companies are willing to give up some of the high-level governance features, like controlling the board, because they know that at, at heart they still control most of the product, all the key. They control the, the key parts of the product. 
Now, that being said, there is a fair amount of risk that ARM China just can go out and develop its own stuff, and ARM admits that it'll have no control over that. Uh, so it's not a great setup. Um, it's probably not as bad as the U.S. press makes it out to be, but it's still super, super messy. And yeah. it's, again, it's their biggest customer. Right, and and a lot of that is their core revenue because that's Xiaomi, Oppo, Vivo, right? And that's we've we've agreed those are the that's the mobile is the big market here, and so I wouldn't be surprised if one of those customers was on the on the list. They're probably yeah. big licensees too. Yeah, no, I, I agree. You you uh, other people had commented on this. I just wanted to briefly sort of t- t- touch on it and get get kind of your thoughts. Um, so they, you know, revenue declined um, sort of year over year. But I think people were interpreting that to some degree as, like you just said, there's a high exposure to mobile. Mobile's had a pretty soft set of few quarters. Um, was that also your sense? It was probably coming from just softness in, in the mobile market? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the big, the big takeaway is this is, this is mobile there but i mean that's yeah. that's that's good and that is oh it's cyclical sure. the cycle sure. will turn probably some point next year okay yeah the the bad news is they're still heavily dependent yes. on mobile right right which is why i thought there was a good attempt to talk about category diversity and that's true because they certainly have flexibility in their architecture as well as the way that they've got compute subsystems to now go into all of these different areas, but but obviously, like every company, you need to talk about your revenue, you know, and financial diversity into other categories so that you're not heavily modeled or viewed as heavily dependent upon one thing. And so that's kind of baked into the whole thing, which is, you know, this technology is going into all these different end categories, it's underpenetrated in all of these other space other than mobile. And so there's upside, but very hard to, to, to quantify that. And we'll talk about the upside later. Um, but let's, let's briefly touch then on some of the, some of the risk statements, um, acknowledging your point, which I think is, is a good one that it's designed to, to paint an apocalyptic picture, uh, just in case. Um, but, but was there any, any areas of that risk statements that, that then you thought were particularly interesting? I'd say chief among my list of interesting risk factors was all the disclosures about SoftBank. Um, SoftBank will continue to control the board. Mm. SoftBank will get all of the proceeds of the IPO, 100%. None of the money goes to the company. Uh, SoftBank will continue to control the board basically until it sells down its share below 50%. And I don't even think as it stands now, there will be an independent director. Which, from a governance standpoint, is extreme. I think that's pretty brutal. You can't even have one independent director on the board where there's so many conflicts. That's that. that I I don't. They, they could have thrown in one. Uh, the other thing that I'm still sort of teasing through is SoftBank um, transferred ownership, the hold the, the the sort of legal holding of its stake and arm from the Vision Fund to an entity called Kronos, Kronos 2 LLC. And Kronos last year took out a $8.5 billion loan backed by their share in ARM. And they, I mean, that's, 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 you know, textbook, private equity, 
sucking company cash out. They just took a loan, and someday they'll pay it back, ostensibly. There are all kinds of tax reasons why you do it as a loan, but, like... And so, theoretically, ARM is on the hook for that loan. Now, it's collateralized, so what would happen is if Kronos ever defaulted on paying its loan, it would they would just sell those shares. Mm-hmm. But you can easily see a scenario in which they set the IPO valuation really high and the shares come down. That's a you know It becomes a sort of spiraling problem where they have to sell more and more shares to pay back the debt. And so... It's it's messy because of that sort of potential margin call down the road, and it's also messy because in theory, ARM is on the hook for that debt. It's not on their balance sheet as such because it's collateralized, but it's looming out there, mm. right? And so there are a lot of little things like that that really sort of sat poorly with me. Yeah, and and I think we had we had talked about this, but pe- people had mentioned the relatively low float just in terms of offering and i wonder if these two things are connected in order to attempt to manage demand i guess to some degree but but even if they pay back even if they get that nine billion that's not all that they want so i I don't think they're trying to just get that and then they're done like there has to be a long game here i'm just not all sure how that is so that they can get their money back, but there there was a lot of questions around kind of the relative low low float of the offering. Yeah, I mean it's just it's a problem that from a governance standpoint, the the first threshold they they hit for board control is seventy percent, mm. and so they're going to start off with seventy five, so they don't have to worry about that. And it's sort of there's a some kind of cascade below there where they sort of gradually give up board seats depending on how much they still hold. Um, so, but yeah, it, it is a good question. How what what is SoftBank's long term plan here? Yeah, and this is something that I I do a lot of work on. I've written a book about it, about how to how to manage an IPO from a sort of investor relations standpoint. All IPOs have at their heart this conflict between you have outgoing shareholders who are exiting in the IPO. They're the ones who know the company best. Mm-hmm. They're selling their shares to some incoming public market investors who don't know the company at all, who have, you know, the company has no credibility with, with the street. And the, the problem is all the people advising the company prior to the IPO, the bankers, the lawyers, the accountants, the board, all of those people are going to see this transaction from the viewpoint of the outgoing shareholders. So all the advice management is giving about, or all the, that they're receiving about what to value the shares at are people who have a very strong bias in one direction. And there's mm. often there's a big risk that you sort of pump up the IPO, you maximize the the valuation at the IPO to help those outgoing shareholders, right? And then the company is set stuck with a set of unrealistic expectations, which they immediately start missing from the first earnings call onwards, and that blows up their credibility with the street. And so, I, it's it's weird to me like the the way you, textbook way to handle that is to keep the IPO valuation low, build right. up a couple quarters of trust with the street, and then you right. do a secondary, right? And you can do, a, like, there are companies that have, you know, did a dozen secondaries and that slowly yeah. got their their shares out, right? That's kind of what Mobileye is doing with Intel, yeah. right? Slowly, slowly leaking out their shares, right? That's that's the way to do it. The The rumor in the press right now is that, 
is that SoftBank is looking for a $64 billion valuation for the IPO, right. which in my post I said was a suicidal figure. And it's a really bad setup for the company from the get-go. Yep. How does SoftBank... SoftBank is going to have to deal with that because they're still going to hold 75% of it. And so how do you how do you square those things? I don't know. I have heard a couple people, I mean, w- wildly speculating that SoftBank may not really care about ARM long-term because they have a near-term plan to exit their sh- their their holdings more quickly, right? And I think that goes to the all these rumors about some consortium of major licensees chipping in right. to buy a, a right. buyout SoftBank. Right. Right. Something that would pass antitrust uh, scrutiny because right. it's a consortium. So all the people who might complain about NVIDIA buying it are going to participate in this. And, and that gets SoftBank off the hook. And so if, if that's true, if that's really going on, then SoftBank is going to set it set the valuation to the moon because they're going to immediately sell for that amount. Mm. Again, wild speculation. No idea yeah. if that's true, but I, I you know, I'm as, as much as SoftBank and Masa like to talk about this big vision for the future, I don't really get the sense that they're playing this super long game here with three-dimensional chess. I think they mm. want to get the valuation high and they're just going to hope it keeps going until they can exit it. Yeah. I've heard multiple people say the same thing that you alluded to, that the smartest way to transfer ownership, and I think that's what most people believe is the plan here, um, would be to set the price more reasonable so that, exactly like you said, you build the trust back. Because, I mean, maybe you have a different view, but I I think this any initial investor pool is probably going to be somebody who was investing in this company when they were public prior. So you would hope that they have some knowledge. I'm not sure they're going to get a ton of brand new investors. And so you want to rebuild that rapport and credibility with those same investors, which I think happens in the scenario you outlined, which is that set the price more reasonable, continue to have growth because it sounds like there is a growth plan and that they do have revenue growth that 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 will be consistent. And so great, right? Build that up. and then And then let there be this this transition plan, right? Whatever it is. And I do believe other big name partners will come in at a range of investments, not going over the number that is going to freak anybody out uh, out in terms of, of overall shares. So I do think that's going to happen. But exactly what you said, I think, is the unfortunate probable case is that the valuation goes really high, they sell as much as possible, and then I'm just really worried about the, that price really crashing and then really putting sour grapes, water, whatever, on this entire situation um, in, an un- in an unfortunate way. I just, I'm, that worries me. But that may or may not happen. <laughs> it's, it's certainly, I think, uh, a thought that's not unique to me or us or, or others. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the big fear. But, you know, it, I, I kind of want to be glass 50% here. Like, there's a lot of things to be concerned about. There's some other things that were a little bit more positive, right? I I do think... Like, I I, I was very interested in their TAM discussion. Right? I thought that was really... Like, again, they sort of laid it out in text. They didn't put it out in in a graph. But there's a graph in my blog, if anybody wants to look at it. But they have, you know, exposure to a lot of different things. I mean, it's still, it's still an important company and still out there doing some, some pretty good work, right? They have a lot in consumer electronics. They have a lot in in automotive. 
connectivity, supercomputers. There's a lot. There's a, there's a fair amount going on here, and I, I think part of I, one thing to keep in mind is what we've seen just so far is the F1 the filing, which has to conform to yeah. some pretty rigorous SEC guidelines. It's a legal document. It's a very legal document. Yeah. I will be very interested when the roadshow starts. And we get the roadshow presentation, which hopefully will talk more about growth because the company's clearly working on a bunch of different initiatives, some of which they're sort of sprinkled around their little hints here and there about some of the things they're working on, which I think could actually lead to the, you know, could really make the growth, growth story come alive in a way that the S1, the F1 is just not meant to do. Agreed. Right. So there's little, there's talk here and there about them doing more physical hardening of chips, sort of moving up the stack a little bit. Of, there's there's some rumors about them doing their own products and um, some software stuff. It's it's again it's 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 kind of buried in there. It's not yeah. prominent. Uh, it would be it would be good to hear them talk about that more. Yeah, agree. So so let's talk just us speculating about the the growth prospects here. So so one, I actually thought after you and I talked about this that there are eleven cent per chip average. Um, for anyone who backs into that math, is actually not a bad thing because I think it does show, one, how low, perhaps, the value of that IP had been priced in prior business models, and two, that as business model changes for ARM, which which we know is coming, we don't know this this the the details of it, but but they're certainly recognizing that the model they used before is outdated didn't really bring the same sort of value to the IP that they provide and that that's being changed. And so if anything, I thought like, okay, well that actually might mean there's some more upside, right? If they can move from 11 cents to 18 cents or even 21 cents, right? Double it. Um, there's definitely room to do that within the way that they're constructing their IP blocks, compute subsystems, because one of the things that was kind of clear when they talked about the path was, you know, it's, it's gotten more complex to develop chips. Like that was kind of an underlying theme. And to say that, well, we build the, the platforms, the subsystems to do that, but it's in all these different compute blocks, it, it sounds to me like there isn't just gonna be a standard fee, standard royalty for all IP now, but that they're gonna break this up into ways that monetizes these, what they you know consider complex compute subsystems into ways that are accurately reflective of the value of those, right? So maybe a initial sublet of an architecture is one price, but as it becomes a high performance core, for example, something they're, they're talking a lot about at Hot Chips today, um, there's more value there. And there should be, because it is, right? It's a more valuable part. So I, I looked at that and was like, okay, because honestly, I actually thought that number was gonna be higher before you told me it. And if it was higher, I'd be like, eh, it's going to be tougher for them to move that. Like if it was 40 cents a chip, for example. Um, so I feel like that's good headroom, especially with the way they're doing these compute subsystems that I do think that there is opportunity within this from a royalty rate, because that's really where their growth is going to come from. It's, it's, it's from royalties going forward of their top customers and new customers. But, but I did think that the way that they've broken up these subsystems to, I think, tie value to ones that we would consider high performance makes a ton of sense. And and I think anybody who's designing these things, and to some degree I do think Graviton, Amazon is under some of this structure now, um, bodes well. It bodes well for them and it's valuable for their customers. And in many cases it's worth it to their customers for what they're investing in. So I think there's, 
lots of long way to say. I think there's opportunity and upside with the structure. It's just unclear how they how they get that. Yeah, I, you know, something I've talked about a lot in the past in in my writing has been the way that I've always felt that arms pricing model is broken. I've said for a long time, it's upside down, right? Because right. you have the big legacy customers, the Qualcomm's and the MediaTek, who have been customers forever, have the best pricing, right? They've negotiated volume discounts years ago. And and then all the new companies that are coming into the space are stuck with the very high prices. High prices, high upfront license, license payments. And, and that's really done nothing but help risk five grow, especially in China. Right. And it's, it's interesting to me because you think about the other semiconductor software slash IP companies, Cadence, Synopsys, those companies have seen a huge boom because everybody in the world is sort of developing their own chip, right? You know, Cadence and Synopsys customer base is like doubled over the last five years, some, something, yeah. something like that. And I, I, I don't see that trend happening here with, with ARM. In fact, that was probably one of my first impressions. I was kind of disappointed. I didn't see any of that because they've been trying to fix it for a while. Yeah. And I, I was I was hoping to be wrong. I was hoping they would prove me wrong because I've I've tried I'm trying to be optimistic about it. I think they've made a lot of progress, and I was hoping that they had fixed some of that. It wasn't it wasn't clear from the numbers that that they actually have fixed any of that. And believe me, I sure. was as surprised as you were when I came out to eleven cents. Like I right. checked that one a few times. Yeah, I, I, I think I. I, I I was gonna say I think I I know that management is aware of the problem. They don't yes. they don't see it quite the same way I do, but they they are aware of the problem, and I think part of their part of their I think the the real motivation that they're suing Qualcomm is because they want to try and fix that. They want to try and extract more from the bigger customers, uh, and and yeah, if they can double the the revenue, the royalty rate from from Qualcomm and MediaTek and some of the others, that that effectively doubles their revenue, which would be huge. Right. Uh, now that assumes they can win this lawsuit, which is, you know, beyond our our ability to assess. But that would be huge, and it would go a long way to fixing their pricing. Right. Well, so so on that, there's a couple things that I think were were interesting. Right. One, in some discussions we had, if you recall, there was a a um, an outline of that there is a lower bar to entry for it's called these. I think it's the flex the flex approach to contracts if it's just a minimum set of IP. So that number's come down. It's not whatever it was, eight, nine, ten, ten, ten million dollars, right? You just get your foot in the door. It's come down a lot. But but when I when we heard that and sort of digested it, that, that's what sort of got me thinking that there, there is a an entry, right? There's a, there's a cost to entry which there isn't with Risk Five, but there's still costs associated with with Risk Five. But there is a cost, a small cost to entry, and I think their hope with those models is you know get somebody in the door. Even if it's the bare minimum set of IP, let them start figuring out what they're going to develop. But instead of these contracts, which were before, one set price for all IP, now build those blocks in a way that says, well, once you've passed your, your threshold, you've figured out what you want from this kind of minimum, minimum uh, uh, entry, now you start layering on value, and that's where some of those additional costs will come into play. And so I think... I think that's kind of how they want to address this from a new customer standpoint, because this is a new customer standpoint point, not one of of existing customers. But that's why I think this is being this is being segmented, like the royalty or the or the costs 
are being sug uh, segmented into these compute subsystems. And, and I do think there's a way you can build a model there, right, of, uh, of upside. To your point, though, about existing customers, and, and, and we have to just come out and say, no one outside any licensed company has ever seen one of these contracts because it is actually breach of contract to talk about your contract. So we don't know what those look like, but I, I, I'm curious how they're gonna move a customer who has a long-term contract, call it still 10 more years, maybe still 20 more years. H how are they gonna change that? And you're right, some of this Qualcomm lawsuit I think is designed to pick at that. Um, but most of these companies have very, very long contracts. So, so does that mean that, you know, ARM V10, for example, when it comes out, has a different cost structure with it than it did before, right? Those are the things I'm not sure about. That's what I hope we learn. But I, I don't love this idea. And, and I think if their entire upside was built on, well, we're just going to get more from all of our existing customers, I'm just not sure that's the big growth plan that could put any reasonable valuation on this company. It's, it's got to be other ways, as, as including new customer bases as well. And the business model has to support that, right? Support new customers and make it economically friendly to do so to attack this threat of risk five, like you put out and like they had a number of, of, of statements dedicated to that in their, in their risk statements. Yes, I think, I, I think, I mean, we, we know there's all these rumors about them trying to go to the OEM and charge directly. And these are rumors that are not just coming out of the Qualcomm lawsuit, but things that have been reported in the press pretty, pretty well by this point. Um, I think that's interesting. Uh, I'm starting to think they can make it stick in some ways, uh, but but to your point, is that enough to really drive revenue? Is it really going to make a big difference in terms of growth here? And I, yes, maybe, but it's going to take a long time. I mean, that's the other other problem. I think it's going to take years for a lot of this to play out, right? I mean, if one of the key determinants of the success of their growth strategy is suing Qualcomm, that by definition is you know two years Agreed. away before we know any idea how that plays out. Agreed. The, so, the OEM point, though, is an interesting one, but it's also one that I think is, is hard because OEMs are not going to pay more, and, and there is some legal uh, defense around this concept of double dipping. Qualcomm had gotten hit trying to do it, and I don't think that's what ARM is doing. I think if, if the, the scenario that I've at least mentally come up with and heard others sort of talk about is that they just want to change who the royalty is paid to, so if MediaTek was paying that additional royalty because of a, a design win, Arm wants the OEM to pay that, but it's the same amount. So the number doesn't change in kind of what I'm hearing. Yes. It's the same number. So, so that's why I'm not sure you're not going to get the OEM to pay more because they got no margins to do so. So you're really just transferring. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. My, my thought would be, though, if you have a direct relationship, you can drive the sale process in a new way because you're, you're and so theoretically that can help but again it's going to take a long time because you still have to deal with the intermediary intermediary of the companies actually building the chip yeah okay so let's move to this last bit 
that's this, this, this chapter in this podcast on what does this mean for other and, and I think we're talking specifically about other potentials for semiconductor IPOs because there are some we believe are, are, are coming. Um, obviously, I'm sure you're going to say, well, how this pans out makes a difference on who goes forward. But let's just forward lens and say, okay, we are expecting other semiconductor IPOs. What does this IPO mean for other people? Right. So in, in some senses, you know, there's been a lot of activity in the capital markets this week or last week, because uh, we had, in addition to the ARM filing, we also had a couple of internet software companies filed, big ones, Instacart and Clavio. Those are big companies. So let's all be you know grateful for a second that the IPO window is opened again. That's that's good news for tech. Uh, I think in terms of ARM's IPO, the, the, the next one that everyone's going to be looking for will probably be Ampere, right? who is, you know again, a leading maker of ARM-based server CPU chips. And there's some hope that they're going to, you know, I think it's been reported that they're planning to do a public maybe next year. And I think the fate of the ARM IPO will weigh very heavily on their prospects for going public. A successful ARM IPO where the stock is not just popping on the day of the IPO, but is, you know, six, nine months later, still above IPO price, will make the Ampere IPO possible. On the flip side, if ARM really does go out at $64 billion and crashes down to 20 or whatever, then I think that not only delays, I think that delays the Ampere IPO probably forever. I think that there's there's a very there's some very high stakes here for Ampere, depending on how the, the ARM stock trades. Mm. I don't I don't like that, but I think that's the reality of the markets. Interesting. I you know when we were sort of speculating on this too, like I I had wondered how how much the difference of their business model you know plays into this because Ampere, while they license from ARM, you know is still going to be an end product company building a product on ARM IP. Yes, but building a product and selling a product. The 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 thing that intrigues me about you know ARM is that there's just not. There's not a lot, it's very, very rare that there's a pure licensing business that is a, a public company. Um, and so I, part of me just wonders how much a business model difference plays into this. But obviously, this is a point about semiconductor company IPOs and you know what that looks like. Because you're right, a, a lot is riding on how it's valued. Um, a lot will continue to come out. At, you know, once they do IPO, a lot of more financial clarity will continue to come out on this business and their customers. So it will be will be telling that way. Um, but yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. But I do also think there's a little bit more in Ampere's favor because it's a product, not a licensing business. Um, but agreed that this needs you, to go you, well. You and I know that. You and I, yeah, you you and I know that these are very different companies, but. I think we go back to the realities of the street where you have investors on the buy side looking at these things. It's a, it, they're not necessarily going to make those sure. fine distinctions. Sure. Like they'll, they'll understand it, but, but you know, there are lots of mutual funds out there, very big mutual funds who have one technology analyst right, who covers all technology. Yeah. A lot of the super big mutual funds have IPO specialists who just do, all the IPOs and 
they don't they don't even know the difference between hardware and software. Like that's not their sure. job. They just have to understand the the order book mechanics. And to all of those people, this is a semiconductor company, right? They're, mm. they're not going to look at it any other way. Maybe if you sort of squint and you look at it the right way, you're going to compare it to some of the software companies, some of the EDA companies. Like if, if you're really doing a legitimate uh, investment banking grade comps analysis, you're going to lean heavily on cadence and synopsis, uh, but I think most investors are going to comp it more broadly to to semiconductors and, you know, include product companies in that. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think you're going to be able to comp it to pure play software companies uh, because once you once you start doing that, it's it, it's it, these aren't really it's not really a software company. Right. Exactly. Right. Maybe. Again, if you squint real hard, you could call this a software company, but you can't compare it to a Databricks or a Snowflake. Yeah. And then once you start looking at those companies, then you have to compare this, this to NVIDIA, mm. right? And I think, I think mm. our, it's, very, it's very hard to compare ARM today with NVIDIA peak or whatever valuation it's at now. Uh, those are very, very different yeah. situations, right? So uh, ultimately, this is, this is, people are going to call this a software company. Investors are going to mm. call this a software company. Mm. I mean, excuse me, a semiconductor right, company. Semiconductor. And that's just the reality of how the street works. Agreed. All right, well, let's wrap with that. Obviously, we will talk about this once the IPO happens and we have uh, more information there, plus Roadshow, et cetera. So this topic is not over. More to come. It is a fun, fun saga, saga to watch. So thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, like, subscribe, give us reviews, etc. cetera. Uh, we appreciate your time as always. So we'll speak to you next time. Thank you, everybody. Tell your friends.